one another and each other to the Word of God. We open up a passage, we explain what that means, we apply it to our context. We want you, if you have a Bible, to walk through the passage with us. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand real quick. Our brothers back there will bring you one so that you can follow along while we read. Um, Let me pray for us before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word that teaches us, instructs us, corrects us as we hear truths we've heard before, we pray that we wouldn't tune them out, zone them out, but that we would uh, listen to what you have to say, that we would not only listen, but we'd apply it. Your word repeats the same themes over and over and over again because we don't do it. In our stubborn, sinful hearts, we rebel against what your word so clearly teaches. I pray this morning that we would allow your spirit to move in our hearts, guide us, in our actions and deeds, that we would hear from your word, that we'd submit to your word, that we'd learn to love your word this morning is the only thing that can uh, restore us to the image of Christ, that can uh, build us up in our faith. Father, I pray that this morning we would see your son, Jesus, in the word, that we'd enter into maybe for the first time relationship with him, build existing relationships with him. Uh, We pray that your word would be powerful this morning, that it would not come back void. Uh, that, that the word would be proclaimed, that this messenger that delivers it, uh, if he messes up anything that's uh, not correct or he speaks in haste, that you would uh, forgive those things, allow the congregation to, to understand your word apart from him. Father, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to start this morning by asking a weird question. Apparently, a hundred years ago, it wasn't uncommon when you went to the doctor, uh, if you went to talk to someone about a problem or issue in your life, they would ask you this question, but I don't remember the last time anyone's asked me it. How did you sleep last night? How did you sleep? In our passage today, sleep is kind of a litmus test of, of how much you trust in God based on your circumstances you're going through. It's not saying that if you slept well last night that you're the perfect Christian, you don't need to hear the message. But most of us, we don't lie in bed, fall asleep quickly, wake up in the morning feeling refreshed and ready to go. I don't even remember the last time I woke up refreshed. When you're laying down to sleep last night, sometime this week, in silence and you're reflecting on what went on through the day, what went on through the week, All these thoughts come bombing into our heads. We can't get rid of them. We have to deal with them. Some of us, we can't sleep at all. We stay up all night fidgeting, uh, twirling around in bed. We can't seem to fall asleep because we have so many worries going on. There's so many things in our life that, that are causing us stress and depression and anxiety and distress. Some of us, we replay conversations in our head when we try to fall asleep. Something we wish we would have said in the conversation, something we wish we wouldn't have said in the conversation, something that happened that day we wish that didn't happen. Some of us feel guilt and remorse over sin we committed, people we hurt, things we said rashly, and it keeps us up at night. Some of us can't even handle our own thoughts, and so we zone them out, watching TV, listening to a book on tape. Some of us take sleeping pills regularly to fall asleep. 
And we all stay up with different things. When you're younger, you have fear of friendships and relationships. You have the stress of school. Maybe your parents are stressing you out. As you get older, the, the stress is only increase. As you have to worry about job and bills, family, wife, marriage. If you don't have a family, you're not married. Maybe you stress out about how you're not married. You wonder if you'll ever get married. Is there something wrong with me? You begin to have all these questions, all these doubts. As you get older, you start to question, am I even going to wake up tomorrow morning? Maybe it hurts so bad that you can't sleep, you can't fall into that sleep. How we sleep at night, this almost in our passage today is going to tell us is a litmus test of our faith in God in our distresses. And so if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. We're going to hear today the psalmist's own story about how he dealt with distress. Psalm chapter 4. He begins by saying this. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David is going through a distress in his life. He's asking God for relief from the pressure he's facing. And he begins his psalm by praying. I think there's a lot in that that we don't have time for, uh, but he begins by praying. He doesn't complain to God. He doesn't lay out all of his distresses in order and then at the end, come back to prayer. He doesn't talk about how he has tried all of these things to fix the problem. He begins with prayer. He comes to God in prayer. And not only that, he's coming to God with an expectation that God will respond. He starts off by saying, answer me when I call. And he ends verse 1 by saying, hear my prayer. He's acknowledging he's talking to somebody who has the power to do something or to say something to a situation. His uh, expectation of this response is found in the character of God. In verse 1 he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David's saying, I'm righteous. God's called me righteous only because God himself is righteous. And so I can call out to the God who is righteous to do what's in his character, what's in his nature to do. He recounts past experiences of relief. The second part, or the next part of verse 1 says, you have given me, past tense, relief when I was in distress. He's recounting a time where he was in distress and God relieved him of that and now he's in distress again. And so he calls back those memories of God's faithfulness, God's deliverance in the past. And his call, his prayer to God, is rooted in God's mercy. We see that at the end of verse 1. Be gracious to me. The psalmist is calling out in prayer, but he wants to be sure that he reminds himself that he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve to be able to ask God to answer his request. He doesn't deserve God's graciousness in the past. He doesn't deserve any kind of answer or response. But when God does respond, it's because God is gracious, because God is merciful. We would expect then that verse 2 would begin with David's 
requests. Verse 1, he's praying. We expect verse 2 for him to lay out all his demands. I'm in distress. Remove the distress. I have enemies. Remove my enemies. He does that in Psalm, but not in chapter 4. In chapter 4, in verse 2 instead, he poses a question to those who are causing him distress. Verse 2, he says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He begins both questions with the, with the question, how long? This is a, a period of distress. This isn't a day or a week. This is ongoing. How long will you turn my honor, in, or shame, or honor into shame? They're slandering his reputation. They're questioning his integrity. How long will you love vain words? and seek after lies? How long will you love the things and pursue the things this world says are valuable? Those vain, worthless things. Those things that are lies. And as I was preparing this, I was ready to move on to verse 3. All the commentaries jumped into verse 3. I picked up a commentary from the early church fathers from way back when. And there's a guy by the name of John Chrysostom. I don't even know if I said that right, but uh, he said this about Psalm chapter 4, verse 2. He said, If I were the fittest on earth to preach a sermon to the whole world who were gathered together in one congregation, and I had a high mountain for a pulpit from where I might get a prospect of the whole world in view, and were furnished with a voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of the archangel, and the whole world might hear. So he's saying, if I could preach one sermon to the entire world at one time and they could all hear it, because I could choose to preach no other verse and no other question than Psalm chapter 4, verse 2. How long will you turn my honor into shame? How long will you pursue and love these worthless, vile lies? And so as I dug into what his thought behind it was, The idea is that when the people were attacking David, they were actually attacking God. And so to understand that better, we have to understand the context of chapter 4. There's no immediate context given. David doesn't explain his distress in any way. But the Jewish people, people of Jewish faith and the early church, they saw Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 as one couple. Psalm chapter 3 was a morning psalm. You'd read it and worship in the morning. Psalm chapter 4 was an evening psalm. You'd read it and worship at night. Psalm chapter 3 begins by saying, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. If you don't know the context of that story, it takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18. David is reigning as king of Israel. God has given him the throne. He's promised from When David was a little boy, you will be king. Remember Saul tried to kill him. He hid, came back, became king of Israel. Now his son, Absalom, is trying to become king of Israel. And so he raises up a bunch of people. He lies about his father, David. He convinces them that God has blessed him, that they don't need to follow David, follow his God the way that he talks about. 
And so he raises up this people to take over the throne. Now in a monarchy, the only way to take over a throne is if you give up the throne. David says, I don't want to be king. Absalom can be king. God already said, you are going to be king. Solomon, your son, will be king after you. The only other option then is for him to take the throne by force by killing the existing king. And so Absalom is trying to kill his father, and so David runs into hiding. He's hiding here, he's hiding there, he ends up in a cave, and he's in distress. Now I don't know what you're going through here this morning, I don't know what stress you have. I'm hoping your son's not trying to kill you. I, I would hope not. David, his son, is trying to kill him. That's a distress many of us do not know. <clears throat> In that, what David is saying, saying, you've turned my glory, my honor into shame. God has given me this honor. You have made it a shame amongst me. You're not only attacking me, you're attacking the God who's given me this throne. You're pursuing these lies and these, these worthless things in opposition to what God has decreed and commanded. And so the sin of verse 2 that these men are committing is not just against David, not just against Israel, but against God himself. If we were to rephrase the question for our culture, it might sound like this. How long will you spend more time and thought on the word, the world than you do on Christ? How long will you neglect obedience towards God in order to gain what the world has to offer? How long will you so eagerly pursue the passions of this world and remain so cold in the pursuit of God? How long will you allow your joy to be dependent on the blessings of this life? Those are the questions David is asking these men. How long will you exchange what God has decreed for what the world is offering? There's where his distress comes from. Yes, he's trying to be killed. Yes, he's hiding for his life. But in verse 2, he lays out what he's scared of most, what he's so saddened about, and it's their pursuit after something other than God. In verse 3 through 6, or 3 through 5, he's going to talk us through what it should look like for those who walk with God. It's a reminder for those who are obedient, and it's a, it's a uh, warning for those who are disobedient. And so verses 3 through 5, you can look at it two ways. One, this is a, a warning for those who are disobedient. This is a, a red flag of areas where we may not be trusting in God, areas that, that our distress is, is conquering over us. Or it can be reminders to us of who God is and who we are in Him. Verse 3, he gives us our identity. He says, O men, how long, or, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord hears when I call to him as a, a callback to chapter, verse 1. Answer me when I call. Hear my prayer. He says, The Lord will hear me when I call. Why? Because it's rooted in his identity. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. David is set apart. He's chosen. He's loved by God. 
Therefore, God will respond what's in His character, which is love towards David in hearing His prayer. This is an encouragement for us in the, the New Covenant because we teach the doctrine of election, that God has chosen a people for Himself. This isn't a dry or unloving or just theological statement. God shows you. He loves you. You're entered into relationship with Him. That's your identity. When trials and distresses and the things of life come at you, the Lord hears when you call to Him. You're not alone. God's not abandoning you. God's giving you these distresses. God's giving you these these, uh, circumstances so that you would depend on Him. That you might come to Him in prayer. In verse 4 and 5, He gives us six commands on how to live out this identity in obedience or discipleship. It says in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And So He tells them, Be angry. Do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifice. And number six, put your trust in the Lord. All of those could be a sermon in and of themselves. Just be angry and do not sin. There's a type of anger that we're allowed to have where you do not sin. But many of us, when we become angry, we respond in sin. Someone angers us, and we tell them how we feel. Someone cuts us off in traffic, they know exactly how we feel. When we go through life and there's these distresses that cause us pain, we get angry. Come back to that in a second. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds. Examine yourself. Look into your heart. Look at yourself. I think David is writing this exact thing because he's the cause of his current distress. He's the cause of it. He could easily get angry at God. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Oh, it's my fault. He's examining himself. It was his sin with Bathsheba, a married woman. It was his sin by killing her husband. That led to this family drama, this dynamic that led Absalom to want to take over the throne. It was his fault. God's allowing it, yes, but as he's examined himself, he realizes he's guilty. Ponder in your own hearts and your beds and be silent. How many of us, when we go to bed, it's silence? If you're like me, You get into your bed, I turn on my laptop, open up Netflix, turn on The Office, and I let it play. I don't even watch it, it's just background noise. Eventually I drift into sleep, and I wake up. Sometimes The Office wakes me up, because I'm asleep, and then the introduction comes on and I'm awake. Most of us, it's not silent when we go to sleep. He's saying, there should be silence. Allowing for reflection and meditation. Examining your own heart. Most of us, if we go to sleep really quickly at night, is we don't allow for reflection. <clears throat> I'm guilty of that. 
Uh, this past week, I tried to not do that, and I could not fall asleep. I could not. I would stay up two, three hours past the time I wanted to. I'd wake up exhausted. It ruined my entire week because I'm so used to this. Be silent. So come back to the be angry and do not sin. We become angry in our circumstances. When someone sins against us, when we feel like something's happening that's unjust, we don't deserve it, our response is become angry. Angry at those who caused it. Angry about it. Ultimately, though, if we're sinfully angry in our circumstances and we believe in a sovereign God, ultimately what we're saying is I'm angry at God. I'm angry at God for allowing this to happen. We may say, I'm angry at this person, I'm angry about the situation. We may not admit in our hearts or our minds, we may not even think it consciously, subconsciously in our hearts, there's a hatred that's developing towards God. Why are you allowing this to happen? How could you bring me through this? I just had a season like this and you brought another one. We become angry towards God. The problem then becomes, when you become angry towards someone, you don't want to run to them in times of distress. And so unconsciously, when we become in a situation where depression, distress is taking over, some of us harbor this anger towards God. Instead of running towards Him in prayer, we run towards anything else that might relieve us of our pain. How many of us have anger towards God? How much anger do you have towards God? Do you recognize it? I like how David then transitions from anger towards God into worship. Verse 5, it says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. This is the idea of worship in the Old Testament. Come before God the way that He prescribed. Come before the true God. Not idols, not figments of your imagination. You don't get to invent how you come before this God. Come to God in worship. Offer right sacrifices. When we don't trust God, our worship suffers. We may not know it, we may not recognize it, but when we're here on Sunday morning and, and we don't want to sing to the songs, maybe it's because we have hatred towards God. There's a word or a phrase and we hear it and we think, that doesn't talk about God. That's not God. We have this anger towards God. Maybe when the word is preached, we, we cannot submit to it because we don't trust the God who spoke it. We don't give because we don't trust the work that God is doing. Sometimes, and I'm not saying this is all the time, but we don't even want to come to church. Or if we do come to church, it's, it's out of this ritualistic obedience where we know we're supposed to. Sometimes we come in late because we don't really want to be there. We may not say why, we may not understand why, but maybe it's because we're harboring this anger towards God. We don't trust Him. We don't see how He's working in our situations and circumstances. David could have ended the psalm in verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust 
in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. Trust Him. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a God who hears you when you pray. He's a God who sets you apart. Trust Him. Do you trust Him? Not asking theologically. Theologically, I think if I asked all of you, do you trust God? You'd probably say yes. You may have questions, you may have doubts that, that hinder your, your, your ability to trust completely. But theologically, doctrinally, I think we'd all say that, yeah, God is trustworthy. But practically, practically, do we trust God? In our trials and our distresses, what do we run to first? What do we seek to alleviate the pain and the frustration who do we run to? Is there a sin or a vice or an object we run to? In our times of distress, it tells us what we worship, how we worship, when we worship. In our distress, God is trying to call us to come to Him in prayer. Many of us, prayer is our last option, last resort. We try to figure it out ourselves. Saying, put your trust in the Lord. Could have ended the psalm right there, but he realizes we still have questions. Still have questions. Put your trust in the Lord. Okay, now what? No, put your trust in the Lord. Okay, I get that, but how do I get out of the distress? No, put your trust in the Lord. Okay, what's God going to do? No, put your trust in the Lord. Uh, this is a conversation, if you watch The Office, I already quoted it. This episode was on last night as I was disobeying my own rule. Uh, <laughs> there's an episode where one of the characters breaks up with his girlfriend. Uh, he's getting advice from a coworker, and he asks, what do I do? And she says, well, give, him, give her an ultimatum. Ask her by this time, tell her she's either with you or she's not. And so he tells her, either by this time or not, we're dating or we're not dating. She comes back and says no. He goes back to the first lady, Phyllis, and asks, okay, what do I do now? She says, okay, you move on. Okay, I moved on. Now how do I get her back? <laughs> he didn't move on. It's that same idea with God. Trust God. Okay, now what? Trust God. No, really, now what? Trust God. <clears throat> Verse 6, he's going to ask the question many of us are asking. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? I'm facing this distress, the circumstances overpowering me. Who's going to show me some good? Trust God. Okay, but I need some good. I need to see something. I need something tangible. I need my circumstances to disappear. I need my distresses to be gone. Trust God. We're going to see in the next few verses the distress never disappears. David doesn't get out of his circumstances and then finish the rest of the psalm. God doesn't remove all the obstacles to his, his trust and then David trusts him. Nothing is going to be resolved in this passage. And yet David's response is still the same. Trust me. And they're asking, who's going to show us some good? God, prove yourself. Show yourself to be faithful. Show yourself to be loving. Give me some good. How would you respond to that question? Someone comes to you, they share 
their, their struggle. I'm going through this. My, my marriage is falling apart. And you walk them through Psalm 4 and you say, cry out to God because God is faithful. Worship Him in the right way. Understand who He is. Trust Him. Okay, but who's going to show me some good in my marriage? How would you respond? There are wrong ways to respond. Our culture has a very self-help identity. You don't need God to show you anything. You don't need life to show you anything. The answer is inside of you. Just dig deep, find the inner light, and all your marriage problems will be solved. All your distresses will be gone. There's nothing in us that can cure our distress. Our distresses by nature are designed to show us someone else a better way. This is interesting. I found a, a model that's kind of newer in our culture. It's this model of socialism. The idea that we don't have the joy we need right now, but tomorrow we will. The distress we're caused is because culture is messed up. And so we need to fix culture. We need this program. We need this social justice issue. We need this cause. And when all the causes are resolved, all the right candidates are in place, the budget's figured out, the income's worked out, fair economy, everything's perfect, then we'll have joy. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But this is the last year because next year we're going to have joy. The church has embraced the health and wealth gospel. You're in distress is because you're a bad person. You're a sinner. You need to step up your faith. You need to give more money. And if you're falling apart, it's your fault. If your circumstances are rough, it's your fault. And that's the message we hear in churches that, that you need to come and have more faith. And when you have more faith, there will be no more distress. I don't think that's what David's saying. David's called man after God's own heart and he's constantly in distress. All the entire book of Psalms is basically his journal of distress. We have good answers. Who will show me some good? Some people will say, you don't deserve good. You're a sinner who deserves God's judgment and God's wrath, that, that salvation is all you deserve. I mean, you don't even deserve that, but that's, if you had all that, if that's the only thing you had, God would still be loving and just because you don't deserve anything else. There are those who will say, who will show you some good? We just need to get through this life into the next life. Eternal life will be perfect. There will be no pain. You'll be good once you get there. They're good answers, but how would you respond? David has a better response. Second half of verse 6, he says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He's saying, I have more joy right now in my distress. Right? He lived in a palace. He was the king of all Israel. Now he's living in a cave. He's lying on dirt. He says, I have more joy right now than culture has with everything they desire. When their grain and their wine abound, they're still not going to be happy. They're still not going to have joy. His joy is not found in those situations, those circumstances. Joy is only found in God. Is he really saying, though, that if I had nothing, I would still have joy in God? 
He's saying, if they have everything, I have joy. But is he saying, if I have nothing, I have joy? I'm pretty sure that's the idea behind it. We have other passages in the rest of the Scripture, like Habakkuk uh, 3.17 that says this. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Children are now dismissed. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The writer of Habakkuk says, if I had nothing, if everything I worked for yielded nothing, I would still have joy, because my joy is found in God. We'll come back to that. There's a quote by uh, Watson, the guy who the, uh, the men are reading their book for on Tuesday night. He says this, There is much difference between heavenly comforts and earthly comforts as between a banquet that is eaten and a banquet that is painted on a wall. He's saying, imagine there's two pictures of a banquet. One where there's real food that can be eaten. Every choice fruit, every... Uh, slice of meat you could ever desire, just a banquet filled with everything you like to eat, and a picture of a banquet on the wall. He's saying when you choose the passions of this world, it's like running over to that paint wall, licking the images of the fruit, taking off the paint scraps and eating them when there's this other banquet sitting right there. Saying if I had nothing, I still have Christ, and that is enough. There's no magical formula to how to have joy in God. I think if you just follow what this passage says, you come to God in prayer. You have a pursuit of God. You have a right identity in God. You obey God. You worship God. You trust in God. When you do those things, it leads to joy. Not only does He have joy, you trust in God. It says, I, you have joy. Look at verse 8. This is the most beautiful ending to any psalm that I've, I've read recently. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. He's in a cave. He's in distress. He has nothing. He has God. His trust in God draws him to prayer, draws him to the character of God. He examines his heart, examines his motives. He lays down in silence and he goes to sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There's people trying to kill him and he's going to take a nap. How vulnerable is he in that moment? Sure, he can have bodyguards, you can have home security systems, but when you lay down to sleep, you're vulnerable. You're saying, I'm done. I'm not going to try to solve this issue. I'm not going to work out this problem. I'm not going to deal with this distress. I trust in God. I'm going to go to sleep. Make me dwell in safety, security. There's a guy by the name of uh, Nicholas Ridley. He was a reformer from the 1500s, and he was about to be put to death for his beliefs. The night before he was to be put to death, his brother came and visited him in jail. 
His brother said, do you want to hang out tonight? We can talk all night. We can share memories. We can sing. We can worship. We can recount the glories of God. He said this, no. No, for tonight I plan to go to bed and sleep as quietly as I ever did in my life. That's peace. That's the peace that Jesus had when the storm is raging on the boat and the disciples are freaking out thinking they're about to die. He's taking a nap because he has trust in the God who created the storms. Psalm 4 offers no practical solutions to the problem of false accusations, oppressions, or injustice. There's no solution here that, that we would see as removing of the distress, removing of the depression, removing of the circumstances. However, no matter how strong the accuser or oppressor may be, only God matters. However deep the anguish and uncertainty might be, God can provide that inner peace which makes sleep possible. Now before we get the idea that David is like the superhuman man, we could never live up to his potential because how could you sleep during life's trials and tribulations and struggles? David was a man just like us. If you read through his story, he's a sinner who needs God's grace just like we do. Sometimes he's even a worse sinner in practice than we are. Adultery, murder, family fell apart. But he's still called a, God, a man after God's own heart. The image of David points us to a future king, a better leader who will suffer distress but will not sin. Who will take away a throne, come to earth, dwell his entire life in distress. Who would be murdered at the hands of wicked men, not just hiding from them. Who would be put into a cave in his death would raise to death, conquering our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 4. He's our example. And not only is He our example, He's the one who sets us apart. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who saves us and rescues us. He's the one we pray to. And he's the one that lies, causes us to lie down and sleep because He is protecting us. If you do not know Him, if you don't trust Him this morning, Talk to one of us after the service. Let's get you squared away with him. There's a lot of great truth in Psalm chapter 4. But what specifically should we go home and do? Number one, I think there's a call to community in Psalm chapter 4. David is going through this distress. He's writing this psalm to be sung in the context of church. And he's saying, God has delivered me from distress in the past, and even though I'm in distress right now, I can still trust Him. Some of us this morning, our greatest distress, our greatest trial, our greatest suffering is in the past. Some of you will never suffer again like you already have. We need that input in our lives. How do we handle that well? What did you learn? What do you wish you would have known? How did you handle it in the ways that you wouldn't want to handle it again? Some of us, our greatest trials and struggles 
are right now. They're right now. And we're holding them in. We don't want people to know. We come on Sundays and, and we, we worship, we go home, and we struggle with these things as we fall asleep at night. Because we're trying to deal with them on our own. Some of us, our greatest trials, our future. We need to prepare our youth to handle these trials. How do they handle a marriage falling apart? How do they handle the death of a, a spouse or, or, or a parent? I don't know. You guys know. You need to help us out. Come alongside of us. There's a call to community here that I think is beautiful. There's a call for honest reflection as you lay down and sleep at night. How did you follow God that day? How have you improved? How have you increased? How have you sinned? How have you been angry and sinned? How's your walk with Christ? How's your trust in God? Are you allowing your distress and trials to overcome your, your identity in Christ? Do you trust the Lord both practically and theologically? Theologically, I think we'd all say yes. Practically, did you pray yesterday? At all, like all day. From the moment you woke up till you went to bed, did you pray? Last week, did you pray? Last month, did you pray? When's the last time you opened up your Bible and read the Word of God? Why don't you do those things? Are you harboring bitterness and anger towards God? I think we need a call for a theology of sleep. How do you sleep for the glory of God? We do it eight hours a day. Psalms talks about it. Jesus sleeps. How do we sleep for the glory of God? What do we do before bed? What do we do when we wake up in the morning? I think part of it is this. We pray. We reflect. We trust in God's security as we fall asleep. And it's a call to prayer. Throughout this psalm, it's a call to prayer. Pray to God. When you're going through struggles, when you're going through distresses, when you're going through depressions, there's a call to pray. To come before God. Because He alone can deliver you. He alone can cause you to lie down and sleep. And so we're going to practice this one immediately after church. The elders are going to come up, and we're just going to pray for whoever wants prayer. After the service, after the last song, after the benediction, come on up and we'll pray for you. Whatever your trial is, whatever your struggle is, whatever your, your, your valley is, whatever your distress is, we want to pray with you and walk you through that. Walk with you in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank